Hey, it's me, Sean Fennessy, host of The Big Picture. If you're a fan of this show, there's a new Spotify feature that lets you automatically follow the show. Tap the bell on the show page to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. By turning on new episode notifications, you'll also automatically start following the show. All the latest episodes from shows you follow can be easily accessed in the What's New feed on home. Now let's get into the show. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about duels and duos. Today, we're talking about The Last Duel, the latest film from Ridley Scott, and the first produced screenplay from Matt Damon and Ben Affleck since Goodwill Hunting. Damon and Affleck were joined by the great filmmaker and writer Nicole Holofcener on that script. And thinking about Matt and Ben has us in the mood to celebrate movie duos, so we're going to drop some top fives here today. Later in the show, I'll have a conversation with one of my favorite directors, Todd Haynes, whose first documentary, The Velvet Underground, is in theaters and available to stream on Apple TV+. That movie is about the legendary band and a bygone era in New York City and outsider art, and it's really one of the year's best movies. Todd is brilliant and insightful in talking about his films, so please stick around for that. But first, Amanda, The Last Duel. This is a holiday for us because Matt and Ben are back together. How are you feeling about The Last Duel having seen it last week? Well, it's a holiday for you and me, and I'm not sure that many other people, it turns out, which, um, like, we can talk about it. This did not do well at the box office, and that you and I were just talking uh, before we recorded about how we both enjoyed this movie and think there's a a lot to talk about in it, and obviously the uh, reunion of Matt and Ben and a Ridley Scott movie and a great Jodie Comer performance. There's, like, a, a lot of things that are in our wheelhouse, and... Um, five million dollars worth of people saw it. <laughs> yes, this is a one hundred million dollar movie. It's based on Eric Jaeger's two thousand four nonfiction book. We'll talk about what the sort the story centers around, but the headline thus far has been about the low performance of the movie, which is a shame. And you just said something to me before we began, which I think is fascinating, which is you couldn't figure out why this movie got made, which is not to say that it's a bad film. That's often a question you would ask yourself when you see something that sucks. I think this is actually quite a good film. It's just a film that does not seem like it's um, contemporaneous with modern Hollywood in any meaningful way. It doesn't seem to be talking to what audiences want. That kind of sucks, but it also seems kind of obvious. It's a two and a half hour epic. It's a medieval tale. It's a serious story full of ideas, some of which are effectively communicated, maybe not always communicated that way, but it leaves you with something to think about in addition to being action-packed and not based on intellectual property. Do you think that's why it didn't work? 
Yes, like one of several reasons. And I want to be clear that I really hated myself for having that reaction that I had. I I finished it, you know, two and a half hour movie, walked out. I was like, oh, all of these things that I love and people that I love. And that sense of it being like a fairly random, original idea, well executed, even though it is based on a 2004 book, which is apparently based on actual history, which we'll discuss but i i couldn't escape you know market franchise like online brain and i it has infected me as well and i do think you know people are also evaluating how they want to spend their time how they want to spend their money how they want to spend their kind of covid risk of the week but i think we all just are trained now to be like well, this is the new Marvel movie or this is the Bond or I got to watch Succession because of X, Y, Z. Like movies are now just one small slot in our larger like cultural content wheel or whatever. And if if we don't have like a specific place to slot it in, I think we don't know what to do with it. And I caught myself being a part of that as well. And I was bummed out by myself. I think it's the sort of film that a lot of people will catch on to once it goes to VOD and it starts to stream. I think before we start getting into the story and the performances and everything else about it, it's notable that this is one of the last movies that was set into production before Fox was officially acquired by Disney. It feels like a film that is a remnant of a different time in that way. And so this is when Emma Watts was still running Fox. And, you know, she did push for a lot of films like this. Original stories, perhaps based on historical events, films like Ford versus Ferrari, and it feels a little bit like that movie to me. You know, it's a it's a movie about a, a couple of guys, a couple of guys who uh, maybe they love each other, maybe they hate each other. They have a kind of a rivalry. You know, there is a cer- certain kind of um, 35 plus audience that a movie like this is targeted at. And that is a is a complicated audience right now. It's not always easy to make a movie like that work. And it is happening in direct contrast to the huge box office success of Halloween Kills, the second Halloween film, which was not very well reviewed and people did not seem to care. They showed up in droves this weekend to go see Halloween Kills because they know what Michael Myers is. And it's it's that time of year. And we can discuss maybe whether October 15th was the right release date for The Last Duel as well. That may have been a factor in this conversation. But you want to you want to talk about the movie a little bit? Because there's a lot to untangle here. Sure. So I'm going to, should I try to explain what it's about? Yeah, break, this, break it down. This also does fit a little bit into like, huh, everyone read this book, this 2004 nonfiction book, and was like, we should make this into a movie, which is not you know, obvious to me. So it is apparently based on real events. I'm not a French historian, but the movie centers on a medieval knight named Jean de Carouge, played my played by Matt Damon, um, his wife, Marguerite, played by Jodie Comer, and a, a rape allegation that um, Marguerite and then Jean de Carouge, because of French laws, make against another nobleman, nobleman Jacques Legree, who is played by Adam Driver. And... You see the story um, from the perspective first of Matt Damon's character, then Adam Driver's character, and then finally Jodie Comer's character. And it's, you know, a story really about this very upsetting rape that that they show twice Um, and different perspectives. And then at the end, the way that this charge is going to be resolved in 14th century France is, is by a duel. And so the the title of the movie is accurate. You do, in fact, get a duel. By the time you get to the duel, you feel certain ways about it, perhaps, which is interesting, but you are definitely getting like Ridley Scott directing 
some, you know, medieval people bashing each other on horses and it's gory. So there's a lot going on. It is like, it's, he said, she said, it is a bit about me too. It is a medieval epic. It is a strange courtroom drama. There's also a lot about taxes. There is like, it's obviously Matt and Ben. There are shades of, of Gladiator and other movies previous of Ridley Scott's career. And all of it comes together in two and a half hours, which sounds short when you think about the number of things I just said and is also long for a movie. <laughs> yeah, it's long for a modern film. And obviously, a lot of stories like this get stretched out into miniseries these days. I thought it was an interesting blending of genre from a filmmaker who is not afraid to jump from genre to genre. Ridley Scott has this extraordinary career now across, gosh, it's got to be about 45 years he's been making films. And he's done everything under the sun. You know, he's done these kinds of medieval epics. He's done these kinds of courtroom films. He's done crime films. He's done serial killer movies. He's done science fiction. He's really, he's done it all. And we've said this many times in the past, and we will spend a lot more time talking about Ridley Scott next month when The House of Gucci is released. But until that happens, I thought this was an interesting, what could have been a capstone for his career, because his first film is this gorgeous movie called The Duelist, which was released in 77, and is very much in, in conversation with this movie about what does it mean to have honor and dignity in the face of battle. But that's a movie about two men, and this is a movie about two men and a woman. And mm -hmm. I think the role of that woman is fascinating. A lot of people have compared this movie, and understandably so, to Rashomon, the Kurosawa film. The key difference there is that in Rashomon, when we watch that movie, we see the outline of an event, but the details are deeply different. This movie shades things much more clearly in terms of the perspective. It's it's much more subtle what is different and how people are experiencing things, especially that that really traumatic rape that you, you see twice in this film and the way that it's rendered between the driver's point of view story and Jodie Comer's character's point of view story is is pretty, I thought, pretty impressive in the way that the, the sort of the nuance that the story used to tell it. In general, though, you'd think that a movie like this would, would draw in viewers with the expectation of, as you say, this gory showdown. And the movie opens with the, with the beginnings of the showdown and then mm -hmm. cut, cut back. And then it culminates in the final duel, which I will say, like, as a longtime Ridley Scott fan, this is like, honestly, him at the top of his game. Like, he is better at this than any filmmaker alive. He knows how to stage a showdown so well. It does totally recall Gladiator, to your point. Um, this is also a, a, a Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Adam Driver, Jodie Comer, movie star Bonanza. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are really four, two of the most exciting young actors we've gotten in the last 10 years and two of our, our favorite mainstays in American movies. How do you feel about the performances in this movie and the tone of the performances? I, I thought they were pretty good, even when in the case of, I'll just go ahead and say it, Matt Damon, it's not what I was hoping for from a Matt and Ben <laughs> reunion. I, you know, I, apparently Matt Damon has just, is is in the self-effacing phase of his career and also in the bad hair phase of his career. <laughs> and even in the first segment, which is supposed to be, which is told from his perspective and it is probably like the most sympathetic to this character, he is you know, the, the very uh, strangely styled, like uncharismatic. Mulleted. Sort of boorish. Yeah, deep yeah. scar on his face. Yeah, and also just the character very bad at his job. 
Mm. all of his jobs, just loses every fight, has no money, like pretty much a loser in all senses of the world word throughout. Um, and then it's like fighting for like quote honor because it's all he's got left. So, I mean, Matt Damon isn't having fun. I would say maybe this is fun for him, but it's not a, a joyous time on screen. Ben Affleck on the other hand. Whew, wow. So, he is a supporting character. He's not in the trailer um, because of mistakes made by the marketing department, but also because he's not really central to the plot. He is sort of, he's like a rich, I mean, they're all noble people. I'm not he's really like a, sure. He's like a count. He's basically in yeah. charge of a, a broad division of land in right. France. The hierarchy here is not like totally clear to me, but he just goes around asking people for money and then throwing parties and having orgies. And I would say he's doing both his Shakespeare in Love character and Chucky from Goodwill Hunting simultaneously, gets to yell, take your pants off or some version thereof at Adam Driver multiple times, and even makes the weird blonde goatee work for him, like almost. I think he looked pretty good. I, yeah. I, I thought he was pulling it off. I mean, it was a real like Peter Ustinov style I'm just going to sink my teeth into this performance and ham it up as much as possible. And you're going to, you can tell how much fun I'm having. As little fun as Matt Damon and his character seem to be having, Ben Affleck is having all of that fun. This was pretty great. I mean, he definitely is the supporting part. He's a little bit more of an engine figure because he and Damon's character are sort of oppositional to each other. You know, it's it becomes clear very early on that the Count does not like Jean de Carouge. And because of that, there is this budding rivalry between uh, Carouge and Jacques Legree, who is played by Driver, who is starts out as his, his running mate and his friend and his his fellow soldier, and then becomes something different. Um, the Driver part is really interesting. I've seen it's the least discussed part of the movie I've seen thus far, and I think that that's because Driver doesn't necessarily have a showy role, but it's a linchpin role. Mm-hmm. And once again, I like Adam Driver to me can do anything. I mean, he really, this is a completely different kind of a movie than, say, Marriage Story. And he's, he's excellent. You know, he doesn't, he never seems out of place. He's meant to be this sort of, like, charming, knight-like figure, wooing the ladies and running the town. Totally believable. You can see him shading his performance, too, in terms of, like, is he a noble guy or not a noble guy, as we see the, each of the three stories being told. I was really impressed by him. Yeah. Uh, In total control, and also, his character does ultimately rape Jodie Comer's character and is revealed to not be a good person. But you can, you can see some actors like wanting to protect themselves against that Mm. or like, you know, kind of being wary and trying to signal that they know what's going on. And he really, uh, he's shading the character, but does not seem to be like afraid of being the bad guy. And and showing all of the shades of the bad guy, which I think a lot of people would be reluctant to do. Yeah, there are also a lot of really kind of fun and impressive and scene-stealing supporting performances in the movie. Harriet Walter is de Carouge's mother and, and Alex Lawther as King Charles VI. My boy Zelchko Ivanek as Lecoque, one of the lawyers here. But I think ultimately, this is really Jodie Comer's movie. Yeah. And... The, the final of the three stories, the sort of perspectives that are told is, is through her eyes. You know, we mentioned her a little bit on the 35 Under 35 Movie Stars episode. I mentioned her in terms of Free Guy recently. Of course, she's best known as um, killing the star of Killing Eve. I thought she was pretty 
great. I, I, I feel like our, our suspicions were confirmed when we were doing that list where we were like, we kind of got one here. Now, obviously, if the movie is not a success, that's not ideal for her movie stardom, but she's pretty terrific surrounded by a lot of heavy hitters in this movie. Yeah, she's fantastic. And also, I think part of our positioning on that list was that she's doing another movie with Ridley Scott, which traditionally being a, a heroine in a Ridley Scott movie is a, a great career move. That's that's setting you up yes. well. So hitching herself to Ridley Scott's wagon. Um, Ellen Ripley, Thelma and exactly. Louise. Like, th- this is this is tried and true. Yeah. So the interesting thing about this movie is that ultimately it is pretty direct about being like, this is Marguerite's story. And, you know, each of the parts are introduced as, like, the truth according to Jean de Carouge, the truth according to Jacques Legree. And then when it is Jodie Comer's character's time, they say the truth according to Marguerite, and then they remove, like, the according to. Like, they're just really like, this is the truth. And it's, it's like... Uh, it is heavy handed, you know, but it is also like I, I was thrilled the 90s are back and it's just kind of like, <laughs> let me tell you like exactly what it is. We're not going to be afraid to take a side. Um, but functionally, that means that she is playing this side character or a character who's argued past or taken advantage of for two thirds of the movie and then and has to play that from different sides. And then has to like fully take control of the movie in the final third. And that's like a tricky position to put any actor in. And I think she just nails it completely uh, with no hesitation and like <laughs> lives up to that fairly ridiculous, like the truth billing of just, you know, being able to directly communicate what's going on with this character, even though the rest of the movie has been about how no one else can do that. I love the way that all of the performances change ever so slightly through each perspective. At the beginning of the film, Marguerite seems like this sort of like shy, retiring, obedient woman. In the second part of the film, she seems a little bit more fierce, but more like sort of seductive through the eyes of the Legree character. And then in the third film, she is this like defiant woman committed to telling her story honestly. And you know, seeing each character through the other character's eyes is such a clever little trick for a movie like this. I agree that it is a little heavy handed the way that they are sort of rubber stamping the final point of view, but it's very well told, you know, and it's very engaging and it does lead, it does culminate, as I said, in this big showdown that works so well. I thought, you know, I'm I'm not sure that like the movie we need right now is ever the kind of movie that I'm excited about. You know, I really don't like a movie that is trying to wrestle so unsophisticatedly with the um with the times but i do think that there are aspects of this movie that are a little bit more subtle than that that truth banner that you're talking about and work a little bit work to show some of the nuance and the complexity of having some of the conversations that have been kind of rippling through you know the workplace around the world but specifically in hollywood i mean you know matt damon and, and ben affleck good will hunting is produced by miramax you know they're, they're they were uh on the front lines in many ways of some of those conversations yes i and I would agree that I do think the weakest parts of the movie are when you can feel like that pitch meeting or that brainstorming call of being like, oh, you know, this is like a medieval tale, but also it's like about right now. And so we're going to work in all of the um, modern like touch points or reflections. Not that they aren't there and they're there and they're important and it's cool that it's a movie about them. But when you feel them like forcing the like timely issue it's it's both the answer to my question of like, 
why did you guys want to make this? Uh, I, I assume that's how it got sold. It's like, you know, medieval me too. And, and people are like, great, greenlit. But I think this story and even what it has to say about these issues is, is more interesting just in, like, in the little closed world of the story itself. Yeah, there is a moment um, during the sort of show trial in the film where one character says, you know, we all know that a, a woman who is raped cannot become pregnant and, and Marguerite is pregnant at that time. And, you know, that's a direct callback to literally something that happened in the news a couple of years ago. So there are some fingers on the scale in the storytelling. But generally speaking, I mean, me- most movies like this are very clumsy or very silly. And I, I was I was impressed. I, I really, really liked this movie a lot. and. Um, it's so interesting that it is not at all a hit, like not no. even a little bit. Uh, it's it's obviously disappointing. And it also, I think it undercuts a little bit of the sort of like movie star dialogue that you and I like to have on this show because you got two young ones and two old ones and people were like, I don't care. Yeah. I, it is a hard movie to explain. And even the elevator pitch where you're like, it's about a rape allegation. And people are like, Okay, yes. you know, like um, yeah. maybe I'll watch football like, instead. Right, exactly. And even and even if you're like, okay, cool, but then it ends in like a really awesome Ridley Scott duel. Number one, you feel like an asshole for selling it yes. that way. And number two, but that's movies. Sure, sure, but I think it is like a uniquely challenging pitch and like a uniquely challenging even movie to cut into a trailer. I mean, I guess you could just do all the fight scenes and then surprise people with like, you know, ethics and in, in whatever in medieval France when they get there. But <laughs> like surprise. A different kind of gamer gate, dual gate. Sure. Yes. Exactly. But it and it's tough because Matt Damon's unrecognizable and so clearly not having fun. I need him separate from this to just like go be a movie star again for a second. Like he likes playing losers. He's always liked playing losers, you know? That's true. But we've had a real stretch of unrecognizable losers at this point. And it's like, we need Jason Bourne back just slightly, just for a minute, you know? So you can juice it to make another decade of loser movies. Do you think that this movie has any chance at Oscars? Oh, God, I have no idea. I mean, maybe screenwriting, as you noted in the in the doc, just because it would be fun to do that again with all it's a three good story. of them. Yeah. It'd be great to have them. It's a good plus, script. Yeah, the two of them, plus Nicole Hollis Center, who's so wonderful, to to have them on the circuit. Yes. If they're smart, they would do it. Have they ever been smart? No. Um, and I, I even have to think, because Ridley Scott has House of Gucci coming out in a month, which I have not seen, but that's definitely going to be the noisier one. I mean, it just it has Lady Gaga in it. Uh, it's kind of more shameless and and an easier elevator pitch and has already made such a big noise on the internet and in my heart. So you have to assume that most of like the positioning Ridley Scott and all of those people will go towards House of Gucci. Yeah, I, I, I could see maybe some below the line stuff because the production design is really good. I mean, right. this is a gray, damp, dank, bl- muddy, bloody movie. You know, it it really is a throwback to a, a different time of filmmaking. You don't see a lot of movies that are like this that feel this kind of like hand-worn. And so you could see some, you know, production design or some things like that, maybe cinematography. But it it not doing well does not bode well. I I want I was it, I, it occurred to me when I saw this news yesterday morning that it didn't do well. I was like, should you just put this movie on VOD now? 
Like, should you Probably. just make it 1999 and see if you can just make a ton of dough on it and just put Matt Damon and Ben Affleck in the photo? Because, the, like, the, this movie doing like 2.1 million dollars next weekend, like, it just makes the story even worse. It's like this is actually totally. a chance to kind of radically alter um, the way that these things are rolled out. But it's disappointing, and also like, who cares? You know, like we talk about the box office and where the stuff is going, and it's like. This movie was also basically greenlit three and a half, four years ago. It was a different time in movies go- movie going back then. So I'm, I guess I shouldn't ultimately be too surprised. Um, I was a little surprised by how well Halloween Kills did, though, just because it was also available on Peacock for premium subscribers. And the movie still did $50 million, which is a huge number. Right. Number one, like, honest question, Sean Fennessy, do you know... If at this moment you are subscribed to Peacock or not. I am not a premium subscriber. Okay. I honestly couldn't tell you whether I am. Uh, I think I was at one point. I don't know whether I renewed it. I should check in on it. So I imagine I'm not the only person in that particular boat. You going to check out Halloween Kills if you are a subscriber? No, obviously not. The other thing I was going to say is that I I believe the box office breakdown was that it it was a huge number of young men that went to see Halloween Kills. And that so the... The trends are that young people and particularly young men are like, yes, we're going back to the theaters and people over 35, which is both of us, which is so depressing, are like, "Mm, I don't know. That's true. Although demographically, I was reading that the James Bond film that No Time to Die actually did pretty well for the over 35 demographics, surprisingly well. So I now I'm like, are we all kind of franchise pilled? Are we all sort of like, I will only show up for these big mega events? I think that that's plausible. I think that's true. I do also think that Last Duel is, again, an outlier even for 35-plus people. Mm -hmm. You know, Bond is still Bond, so and it is franchise. But I'm curious to say how this does compare to House of Gucci, which probably has a slightly broader audience, but still is mostly targeted at, like, people, you know, old people who know who Ridley Scott is. And... I think Gaga is a is a dis, uh, differentiator there. Yes, but but I it still is original esque. I mean, it's like based on true events, but mm-hmm. it's not a franchise, and is probably a better indicator of what people will and won't leave the house for. This just seems like a challenge. It like they set themselves a challenge, and it didn't totally pan out at the box office. I would highly recommend The Last Duel. I thought it was great. I actually, I mean, I saw it on a big screen and I loved it on a big screen, although I think people will get a chance to watch it in their homes sooner rather than later. I assume you would give this a hearty recommendation as well. Yes, absolutely. Okay, let's talk duos. Matt and Ben don't get to spend as much time together as I would have liked in this movie, although I thought the decision to make them rivals and sort of hate hate each other was pretty clever. Um, Mm -hmm. Adam Naiman in his review noted that if they won't cast these two guys in a romantic comedy opposite each other, this is the next best thing to do. I thought that was kind of amusing. Obviously, we know them not just as on-screen pairings, but as best friends and collaborators and writers and a kind of spirit animals for this podcast. Um, Movie duos are a little harder to come by than I maybe anticipated on screen. You know, there's some classics that we don't necessarily have on our list. The the Martin and Lewis's or the Lemon and Mathows who made fun movies, but maybe are not my favorite movies. When you think of a duo, what do you think of? Feel free to give away anybody on your list here. I mean, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers yeah, is, yeah. is the very obvious one, which I did put on my list because frankly, if we made this whole list without Fred Astaire and Ginger <laughs> Rogers, like we just would have to be excommunicated for movie them. 
but they became they become a shorthand for two people who make movies together again and again and um, who bring out the best in each other and sort of become a larger entity beyond themselves and also also their movies to an extent. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it, it, you know, see, looking at your list and mine, it's funny that most of these are are older films. You know, some from the seventies and sixties, and some even from the thirties and forties, like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. I wonder why movies are not sold by their duos these days. Like Hope and Crosby, that's a famous one that isn't on our list, and they, they a lot of they made you know multiple, I think seven plus films. Obviously, we know Laurel and Hardy and. Um, that this was a key part of movie strategy, marketing, storytelling for many years. We don't do it as much nowadays. Why do you think that is? Well, that's because they're built into all of the franchises, right? Mm. And there there are a lot of duos who have been in franchises together. I did pick one for my list. But instead of the movie star being the consistent IP that people come to, or even the duo, it's now you're going to see Batman and Robin, or you're going to see... I don't know, Spider-Man and his his mentor, Iron Man, like I, whatever, you know, like all of these people, but that's the consistency. And so selling a movie on just the movie stars themselves is a bit harder. I did have one like honorable mention. They've only made two together, mm-hmm. but I, and they're young, but I think it's very beautiful. And that's Timothy Chalamet and Saoirse Ronan. Oh, and yeah. like, I, they're not on my list because they haven't made that many, but and also because movies are falling apart. But it would be cool if in 20 years there was like a great canon of Chalamet Ronan movies. I totally agree. I mean, that's the thing is sometimes there are kind of characters that are burnished into our mind. And I can I can talk about that maybe by getting our list started. And sometimes they there are, you know, two actors who like to go on and make all different kinds of movies together. I love the idea of Chalamet and, and Saoirse Ronan, you know, making uh, not just a Little Women adaptation and not just a modern coming-of-age story, but a movie set in space, you know, right. and, a, and a pirate movie. Like, they should make all kinds of movies together because they're so great together. Um, I'll start. I, I picked Cheech and Chong as number five. Let me tell you a little story. Uh, I, I've only been out of Los Angeles twice since, I, since the pandemic started. I was in New York for a very short period of time last May. I stayed at my dad's house, and I slept in the basement, and I fired up Netflix as I was trying to go to sleep. And the only thing I could find that I really w- would like settle me down after a fairly anxious set of travel was a movie called Cheech and Chong's Next Movie. Cheech and Chong are so great and so lost to culture. I'm not a stoner. I'm not a huge weed person. I don't. That's not why I was drawn to Cheech and Chong. What I'm drawn to in Cheech and Chong is absurd premises and good punchlines. Cheech Marin and and Tommy Chong are super funny to this day. Their movies are a vibe. They basically predicted like all of streaming animated movies, the way that every story is told. They've now made, I think, two, four, six, eight, nine movies together, including the animated movie. And they hold up. They're pretty fun, you know? So uh, I had to give some love to Cheech and Chong. Number five. Okay. My number five is my aforementioned franchise pick, and it's Will Smith and Martin Lawrence. Uh, I almost went with Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones here. Also, another franchise pick. That would have been good. Yeah, but I have to tell you, Men in Black 3 just is not what I wanted. Mm. And Bad Boys for Life still managed to capture the magic however many years later. So I'm going with Will Smith and Martin Lawrence. I mean, and that's just like pure chemistry. And that's the thing where two people um, just egging each other on kind of transcends the, the very familiar and still enjoyable to me. Uh, franchise template, but they're they're delightful. 
great stuff. Love the Bad Boys movies. Um, and they're back because the last movie was a hit. So yeah. Um, okay, number four, in the same spirit. I had a hard time choosing, so I'm just doing a tie. Just deal with it, okay, Amanda? Okay. Um, I'm going Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder and Will Ferrell and John C. Riley. Now, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley have only made two movies together, so it's barely a fit. I need them to make a third. You know, after Talladega Nights and Step Brothers, like these guys are 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 born to be together. Sure. Um, and the same is true, I think, for Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. You know, their movies in the 70s and early 80s were a staple in my home on HBO all the time. I was probably watching them a little bit earlier than I should have been. Um, but two guys who um, see no evil, hear no evil is not necessarily the best of the movies that they made together. But it is the movie that like clicked my nine year old brain. And I just love their energy. They both had a kind of like, if two guys could both be the wide-eyed, you know, manic, intense punchline machine together, mm-hmm. there's something magical about that. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm cheating and I'm picking two there for number four. That's okay. I sort of picked two on my last one. Okay. Um, uh, so what's num- your number four? My number four are two gentlemen named uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Listen, I, I, I feel like a broken record at this point talking about the the impact that Goodwill Hunting and really the Goodwill Hunting press tour and the 20 or 30 years since that press tour had on me and my interest and movies and movie stars. But I was at the right age. It captivated me. I did also see all the 90s ones like School Ties and, you know, Chasing Amy and where they kind of traded with one guy being the lead and one guy being the supporting actor in, in, in fairly like charming dirtbag movies. But I... I'll defend the Eurotrip cameo. I don't have to defend the Eurotrip cameo. It's amazing. I won't defend Dogma. I I, won't I def- will. I okay. will, Amanda. Dogma rules. Okay. I mean, it's good. I obviously saw it opening weekend because I'm committed to these individuals. <laughs> it's it, it has become more off-screen performance than on-screen performance, but it sort of crystallizes that possibility for me. And I just, I love them dearly. We need them back together in a real proper yeah. story where they are front and center in the film. And hopefully they'll do that at some point, although the box office on this film maybe doesn't <laughs> indicate like, a good really sign. It's really tough. Um, number three, this is my classic Hollywood pick. This is really for, for my wife, Eileen, because she loves the Thin Man films. And so I'm picking Myrna Loy and William Powell. Uh, you know, franchise movies are not new. <laughs> this, is, yeah. this was a mega franchise in the 1930s. The first film came out in 1934. Um, it's based on the Dashiell Hammett novel. It's a kind of detective story, kind of just a high-class boozy hangout story. Um, there are mysteries in every one of the series of these films, um, which are directed by W.S. Van Dyke. But it's mostly about watching Powell and Loy be elegant and charming and witty and creating this kind of like world of lighthearted sophistication. You know, these movies are a vibe in a way that um, not very many movies can be. Something that um, in my in my wife's parlance of the kitchen movie while she's preparing dinner, mm-hmm. she likes to have a black and white movie on TV and while she's hanging out, she would frequently go to the Thin Man DVD collection, which we've had for many, many years in our house. So love both Powell and Loy separately, but together they're dynamite. So that's my pick. My number three is sort of the um, 70 years later yeah. vibe of this. I mean, you know, it's Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, duh. It's like quite, it's shocking that they're only at number three on my list. Um, but listen, Joe versus the Volcano, Sleepless in Seattle, you've got mail. I I don't know what I learned about romance from these people. <laughs> that probably that it's like a little more like polite and uh, has more access 
you know, to to caviar and great apartments than than real life, but just quintessential core modern romantic comedy, like gentle, not really like sparring necessarily, but it's a cozy, lovely chemistry between these people and two of my favorite movies of all time, respectfully to Joe versus the volcano. Quick sidebar, you know, I've been thinking about Meg Ryan a little bit because I just rewatched In the Cut, the Jane Campion mm-hmm. film, which was very controversial at the time and has had a bit of a revival. Maybe we'll talk about that when we talk about The Power of the Dog. And I was thinking about other non-Hanksian Meg Ryan. Where are you at on French Kiss? I haven't seen it in a long time. When is it? What year is it? It's 1995. Yeah. So I would have seen it like in this strain of movies, right? And I was very young also and probably saw it before... It, I was old enough to really understand what was going on. So I haven't revisited it. Should I? I don't know. I I would like to as well. I remember really liking it. It was also an HBO movie that was on all the yeah. time when I was growing up. And I'm a huge Kevin Klein fan. I, I think he's really, really funny in this movie. I mean, it's directed by Lawrence Kasdan. You know, this was a pretty big movie when it was released. And its reputation has sort of fallen in a way that, say, You've Got Mail or Sleepless right. in Seattle has not. Um, you know, Meg Ryan kind of kind of wish she would come back. You know, she's... She's she kind of disappeared from the face of movie making. I think she said she was happy not doing it anymore. She was. Well, or I want her to be happy. So. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Um, speaking of Tom Hanks, number two, uh, Woody and Buzz. Okay, you know, Woody the Cowboy, Buzz Lightyear. Are you familiar with them? So you decided to do some fictional people. I mean, I know Chief well, Chong. Yeah, I mean, is it? It just feels not cool to say Tom Hanks and Tim Allen. There's just something. No, I mean, I agree. They are Woody and Buzz, but it's funny when you kind of you know you start researching all the possibilities that are out there and you, you read a lot of these lists and everyone's, everyone's like Hans Solo and Chewie. Oh, and I was yeah. like, no <laughs> guys, that's not what we're doing yeah. here. That's not, I, I think maybe just cause Woody and Buzz it being voice acting and there being like a certain kind of chemistry that those two guys have to have together. And you know, my love for those films is no secret, but I think also my nephew, Jack, like really, really getting into Woody and Buzz got me reconnected to those movies. And, um, I don't know. They're just a, they're like a perfect pairing and they seem to be commenting on, I think those kind of like Hope and Crosby or Martin and Lewis movies like that, that is a reflection of that kind of chemistry or like, it reminds me a little bit of Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon and something, some like it hot, you know, the, 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 the those archetypes, the sort of like big, bold, overconfident guy. And then the super relatable every man, there's something very sweet about that. And the Toy Story movies are some of the best movies of the 21st century. So Woody and Buzz number two, your number two, you already mentioned, who are they? Uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Have you heard of them? What's your favorite of their movies together? God, I don't... This is the thing. It's just a just a montage of them dancing for me. And it is more like Fred and Ginger sequences than it is any one movie. I mean, Springtime is obviously like the most famous, probably. Yeah, that and Top Hat, I feel like, are probably the yeah. two big ones. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree. I have a hard time kind of like negotiating which one is which I tend to forget I mean Shall We Dance was also very big as I recall Um, but they made a lot of movies together more than I remember two four six eight ten films together wow that's incredible but so this is the thing is that you remember them rather than the individual movies and some of that is because they're just, just like such incredible dancers and you can those it's easy to like watch those on YouTube and then just like move on with your day yeah um but that they do exist outside of the actual projects, I think speaks to the kind of movie duo aspect. Yeah. 
they're they're wonderful. If anybody hasn't seen those films, I think a bunch of them were on HBO Max. I'm not sure if that's still the case, but turn on TCM any any day of the week, and you're liable to find a an Astaire and Rogers movie. Okay, my number one. Um, I I went with Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Yeah. Now they only made two movies together: Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Sting. But those are two of the most fun movies of that era. Arguably, two of the greatest movies ever made. And I like when a movie star, and I think this is true for Matt and Ben too, know that sometimes you can't win every scene, you know. And Redford and Newman seem to have accrued equal respect for one another. And part of the reason that those movies work so well is no matter who's playing the young gun or who's playing, you know, the the more veteran presence, they are in concert with each other. And when they yeah. disagree, it's exciting. And when they're working together, it's exciting. And they clearly love each other. You know, there's just something unspoken between them that works so well. So I, I just, I love both of those movies so much. Um, so Redford and Newman. The Sting is another one of those movies that my parents tried to show me at like eight mm. for whatever reason. And I have to be honest, I was not mature enough at eight to really like follow the plot of The Sting. But I let me tell you that I remembered Robert Redford and Paul Newman. <laughs> yeah, Redford wearing like that that like page yeah. boy cap. Um, yeah, they're just they're they're both beautiful, obviously, and they're such good actors. Um, we're doing the color of money on the rewatchables this week, so I'm in a real Newman oh, wow. mode. Um, that's really big for you guys. It's it's very exciting. I mean, Newman is really, as you know, that's like that's my guy. So, uh, what about you? What's number one? Uh, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. I would have picked this had you not picked this. Yeah, well. I mean, you have to. It's the iconic one. And in terms of, like, for me, this obviously invents both the romantic com- comedy genre as I know and love it, which is, like, two people just absolutely wisecracking, sparring at each other, just upping the ante and ante, um, and then just winding up together at the end. And it's delightful. Um, probably influenced me too much. <laughs> and I mean, they made so many movies together. There is the off-screen element of it, which is really fascinating when you're interested in the Hollywood history of it all. But, you know, Hepburn and Tracy, you can just say that and you have like a specific image of, of, of people arguing with each other in a loving way. I think my sentimental favorite is probably Pat and Mike, which is not... Um, the most popular of them all. I mean, they're all pretty popular, but just because it involves a, a tennis player. Um, but, you know, Woman of the Year, Adam's Rib, they're all just delightful. Yeah, I think Adam's Rib, as I recall, is probably my favorite, but that run... I think it's the best. Yeah. Um, but Pat and Mike's my favorite. But that run there, Adam's Rib, Pat and Mike, desk set, guess who's coming to dinner? You know, the final yeah. four that they made together are pretty legendary. I saw, I saw a Sea of Grass for the first time last year because they added it to HBO Max. Um, and that one was pretty good too. Keeper of the Flame is on there right now as well. Um, almost all of these movies are are legitimately pretty great. Um, so that that helps. Like Just because yeah. you, you have chemistry doesn't mean you make great movies. And they happen right. to also be a part of some of the best scripts and some of, working with some of the best directors of their time. We didn't mention Bogey and Bacall, which I felt bad about. Do they have more than two? Yes, they but they have only like two memorable ones and they only have four and they were all kind of there in the I think 40s 50s maybe oh, just 40s. Yeah, even. I guess you're I mean like Big Sleep to Have and Have Not Dark Passage and Key Largo. Yeah, yeah you're right. They do have four. That's kind of an oversight. I don't think I yeah, realized well, that they had made so many together. I was I mean I was going to do it but then I was like I'm already doing you know Fred the and Hepburn Tracy. So I just wanted to mention also Bogey and McCall are very important. Also, I was really um, surprised that you didn't do De Niro and Pesci. Yeah. I mean, only two movies together. And I guess no, now, now three. Yeah. Shit. 
wow gosh yeah you know so good was the irishman it was it was really good. I loved the Irishman, Amanda Bogart and Bacall. I putting putting Cheech and Chong on and not Bogart and Bacall is a big L. That's like okay. I got I got to reevaluate that that's, one. That's that's not know. ideal. Um, I, I I love Bogart and Bacall. Okay, so Big Sleep, Have and Have Not, um, Dark Passage, Key Largo. Do you have a preference there? Uh, have and Have Not, obviously. Yeah, that's the put your lips together and blow whistle. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's the good stuff. I Big, mean, I you just can't believe Lauren Bacall is real in that movie. Key Largo, mad underrated because Edward G. Robinson is so good in that movie. Also, would highly recommend pretty much any movie those two made together. Um, okay, that's our movie duos. Pretty good, actually, better than I realized because I completely forgot two key entries there. Not <laughs> ideal. It's really fun when people do this. I also thought you might do a cur- curveball and do. Um, Leo and Scorsese, but which doesn't really count, but like sort of counts. But, I think that's a whole other great episode. Yeah, is that star, is that star is and director team ups. Anybody who's made more than two movies it's together. Just nice when movie stars find each other. I agree. I agree. Damn, De Niro and Pesci. Man. I know. What was I doing? Okay. okay. Well, Amanda, thanks so much. Um, we'll see you later this week. Now let's go to my conversation with Todd Haynes. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations like rainbows and ropes or fruity and gummy or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Delighted to have Todd Haynes back on the show. Todd, good to see you. Good to see you too. How are you, Sean? Good. Todd, four years ago, I asked you what's the next thing you're doing, and you very quietly whispered, I'm making a documentary about the Velvet Underground. (laughs) And you were a little mysterious about it, and you've made a movie since then, but V is finally here. So why did you make this movie? I made the movie when certain, you know, uh, forces of rights and Lou Reed's uh, um, a state moving to uh, uh, New York Public Library, and uh, all of a sudden, internal conversations with with UMG and Laurie Anderson uh, were like, maybe this is the time, and who might be a director who would make sense for this. And so we were contacted through UMG through David Blackman, and it was a immediate. <laughs> uh, I was absolutely down for it you know um i knew it would be it would be challenging it would need to um summon a different kind of documentary language Mm -hmm. um we need to try to find an appropriate way to tell this very specific story about this incredibly unique band and that would be the challenge and the creative fun of it you know was this the first time you were hunted down for a for a gig like this 
Oh, you mean, no, I get a lot of different, is that, is that what you mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, I just feel like so much of your work originates with you and. You yeah. Know. There, you know, as soon as I started to work with writers, then I get a lot of stuff all the time, you know, and I get a lot of really interesting stuff that comes to me. Uh, Dark Waters was an example mm -hmm. of that. Wonderstruck was, was through friends that it came to me, but that was also something that I hadn't, uh, originated myself. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but this was absolutely my first documentary venture yeah. and it was going to be, uh, a challenge in a whole new way. So can you do your personal Velvet Underground history for me? When did you first hear the band? What, what's your relationship to them now? Sure. I first heard the Velvets really in college and, but it almost felt like immediately upon entering college, the forces aligned and presented me with this inevitable um, um, experience, uh, a, a sort of discovery mm -hmm. and, you know, the kinds of music I'd been listening to, this is true for so many people who, whenever they, they ultimately listen to the Velvet Underground, they find that the antecedents and all the music that they've been listening to are almost inconceivable without them. And they were being led to this core origin mm -hmm. without even knowing it. And that was, uh, absolutely true for, for me, because I was very steeped in uh, Bowie and um, Roxy and punk rock and Patti Smith and the Stooges. And so, and it's just funny when you look back on your, those years of your life when things come to you that make a huge impact, how the peripheral vision is almost anticipating it and how you, you, you almost know that you got to wait for when you're ready. Mm -hmm. There's a way, and I remember this with David Bowie in, in particular, where when I first was exposed to seeing his records and record stores and seeing those images and having a sense of what the music sounded like, I was like, wasn't ready for it yet when I was 13. I needed to wait, but I knew it was coming. You when, know? when you heard the Velvets in college, were you able to grasp it all entirely because it's the sound changes pretty radically across the albums. You can hear the influence that they have on a lot of artists, but it's not necessarily always the most accessible, especially the first couple of records. Some of it is very jangly and very pop and some of it is much more um, artful. Yeah. Did, did you absorb it fully when you first got into well, it? It's funny. I feel like when I did, uh, discover the velvets and start playing the velvets. I almost did it sequentially. And I felt like it was the banana record that I just fell into and couldn't leave. I just couldn't depart. Mm -hmm. And, but then I knew, you know, I knew sweet Jane and I knew, you know, I knew other cuts from covers of the, the hoople or, mm -hmm. you know, other things that were circulating. So I would find it sort of in various out of order, uh, avenues. But that record um, felt um, like a, a world, an entire coherent, uh, rich and layered and, and you know, multicolored world, but a coherent, creative, artistic statement that, that I felt, um, you know, I've talked about this and, I, and it's so funny when you hear the, the famous Eno, um, you know, 
phrase, the, the quoted, the multi-quoted, multi-quoted statement, and it's not even clear if it's entirely from Eno or from Lou and Eno talking, or uh, that everybody, you know, no one bought that record when it came out, but when the five thousand copies they sold, everybody started a band, right? Because something about that music made me feel creatively inspired and it made me want to it just it started the gears it did something to the internal creative gears um which is you know arguably true for all kinds of things we end up falling in love with creatively and are inspired by but there are some things that do that even more specifically than others that that sort of leave space for you to reply. You know, sometimes, I mean, Bowie was inspiring, but he, he was such a central figure and a persona at the core of his music that you kind of had to contend with that first. Mm -hmm. This was a true, you know, collective artistic um, endeavor. And there were all kinds of avenues into it. When you first got into the band, did you were you aware of the community around them and Warhol and the factory and just the way that that was such a significant part of their origin and the first stages of their existence? I was. I was. It was the way it was contextualized for me among friends and listeners. And, you know, you, you immediately find your – I have a nephew right now who's just, going, just starting college and you're, you just remember that precipitous moment, you know, where you're – and you only want it to be as, as you know, sort of alive and vital and rich for any for for someone you love as it as it really was for me. Um, I also had taken a year off before I started college, and and I was ready to really immerse mm -hmm. in a great academic environment and creative environment, and so I was hungry to be to be stimulated and it provided that and and so yeah i was um but then i would continue to get into warhol's films more in the years that followed and in my years in new york after college and um and get to know the films and the culture more deeply first documentary who's what's the first call you make when you start to make the film uh it's always a conversation with christine vachon when we discuss it, I mean, she she brought me the the sort of offer from David, the, the query, um, and then it's really like, okay, how do we how do we do this? We haven't done this before, so we need to find ourselves some partners who know how to really produce and finance documentary. And uh, Christine did some digging around in New York, but didn't take long to come upon Motto Films. Um, Julie Goldman, Chris Clemens, and Carolyn Hepburn, and uh, they're amazing. Just the three of them and their company and their their body of work. It was an immediate sort of click, and um, I, it's hard for me to imagine how this all could have happened as it did with various obstacles and unexpected things like COVID and shutdowns and 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 isolation and uh, without these guys. I feel like a lot of your films, especially the films about musicians, are very, very much about the mythology of the artist and tangling with that. 
documentary typically is much more deconstructionist, much more clarifying some of the mystery. Velvets are a very mysterious band, I think, to a lot of fans. Yeah. Was your goal to unearth? Was it to make them more mythological? Did you even consider like how you wanted to frame the band and their their work? I did. I think I think for me, you know, for films about musical artists or artists in general, the question is always whatever, whether they're a documentary or a narrative. Now I can speak from both experiences. It's really about trying to find the language or what I perceive the language of that art to be and to try to find a parallel in cinema and filmmaking that makes it like it could only look and feel like this because it's about that artist. Mm -hmm. And it tries to recycle or bring to life, access and activate that specific language. And so with the Velvet Underground who are who have entered finally after decades of of, of, of postponement in the full recognition of their influence and their, you know, essential role at their time and what followed. I, one challenge is also just like how to bring new life to music. We, we know well, or that I feel I know well, that a lot of that first, that what I first felt when I first heard it, I wanted to find ways of, of, uh, triggering and and look from the very beginning what i realized is that with a band like the velvet underground there are inherent limits to what is possible because there is not traditional footage of them performing live in their first years as a band uh they're 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 in an underground culture that is very self-described and truthful and really manifest in that way, although they use that to their best advantage. Um, and it's inconceivable to think of how they came together even without that being the, the sort of context. But, um, but, and Lou Reed is no longer here, you know? So there were things that we had to figure out ways of, of finding different avenues, different solutions for. And, and ultimately, when you have things that you can't do, it it can really trigger the most interesting, crea you know, creative thinking because you have to think about it and you have to contend with it. And what I saw sitting right there with this band and the culture that it came out of is is experimental film culture. And this was inherently visual. It was a world that had not, that is not as well known is increasingly less known as time seems to go on. And it's a, and it's a world that they absolutely came out of and contributed to or in sort of indistinguishable from in certain ways. And that just created like an amazing spirit of a, of a, of a strategy of how to visualize the music and make that music feel vital and new again, put it back in its context. Can you talk about that, like very specifically, the developing the style of the movie, the split screens, the graphic treatments, the use of archival and what where you got the archival? Because it's a very unusual format and it's obviously speaking to the spirit of the band and the scene that they came out of. But I can't imagine that you just, it wasn't like came from whole cloth. I assume you had some trial and error. It, it was, it, it evolved. It was inspired absolutely first and foremost from things Warhol was doing in his films like Chelsea Girls, which is a diptych film and, and diptychs that would fought that, that actually, I don't know if they, 
like outer inner space is a diptych film and he started to play with that increasingly but of course what he did with his films over the band's famous live performances uh the exploding plastic inevitable or the uptight shows or the the tours that would follow were were ways of layering uh film stills gels all of that stuff um but but this vernacular this uh, this this sort of you know uh, optical printer mm-hmm. driven experimentation into what how you could layer and multiply uh the frames on 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 a screen was also being explored by experimental filmmakers at the time even coming out of advertisement the eames did beautiful gorgeous multi-frame films um early on from coming out of design culture you will ultimately see it in fleischer's the boston strangler you'll see it ultimately in passages in the thomas crown affair you'll see it in woodstock we forget i forget i don't watch that film regularly but that that film is actually and it's boxed and boxed moving quickly and, yeah. and it's a very whenever that is the case it requires tremendous amount of planning obviously yeah. and uh but um so all it was fil- all films edited by people who went on to be great filmmakers too like ashby and scorsese yeah and Leon. that's yeah probably not a mistake exactly um so so it was a it was it just opened doors of possibility i remember thinking okay we're talking about a one three three aspect ratio but we're going to work within a one eight five aspect ratio so how is that box how is that 16 millimeter frame going to play in all of these different ways within what is the what is the range of sort of formal options that we can explore and i just from the very beginning was giving little little diagrams to my editors and it was it was exciting because it just felt like you could do so much you could you know, in one point in the movie, the entire screen turns into a grid uh, of the one three three Academy aspect ratio, and then there are times where we go f- where we push in entirely into a sixty millimeter film, and it fills the frames, which means you're which means you're cutting off top and bottom mm-hmm. somehow. But within that, there was a, a, a endless variables, right, and f- frames that would move around squares and blocks that would move around the surface of the frame in multi-frame um, uh, compositions that we'd create. Yeah, I watch a lot of documentaries, so it was nice to find one that was very formally inventive and digressive and yeah. had a lot of intent. Um, can you tell me a little bit about working on the more traditional documentary aspects, talking head interviews, mm-hmm. arranging character arcs? You know, mm-hmm. What was it like to do some of those things as opposed to the feature work that you've done? We knew... The, you know, I knew it would have to take on a unique visual language, but I also wanted it to be anchored with interviews, testimony. And in the same spirit of that being very much about the time and place that the Velvet Underground came out of, I thought, because with the Velvet Underground, it could be like, where do you stop? You can talk to any musician for decades following the band and really interesting people or critics or scholars uh, about their value and their meaning, right? And it was almost like dizzying. And I've seen things like this where everybody tells you how important the Velvet Underground 
were and are and all that. And I'm like, you know what? Let's just not do that. Let's focus it. Let's create some boundaries here that are about the people who were there only. And within that, there would be a, an enormous range. There would be a limited, but hopefully, uh, as it turned out, I think we have a pretty interesting range of people from different perspectives. But that was a nice limit to start. And the very first interview, we, we knew John Cale would be a central part of this. And we needed to make that relationship primary and make he, him feel secure and excited about what we were trying to do. But but we also wanted to get Jonas Mikas on film mm. as quickly as possible. So he was our first interview. Oh, just in time. It, it was just in time. Yeah. And and it and I'm just, you know. I'm so grateful that we made that, you know, uh, decision and uh, jumped on it. I mean, the guy was just so lovely, so, so sharp. So his hearing was so impeccable. I mean, he was just like his memory, his recall. I know these are stories he's told but before, and that's always the case. But his sense of being present in the room was just extraordinary and we were in his house and you know it was just like what a way to start this so we started with with jonas and then we did then we went to to john kale and we sort of built out from there but i wanted to try to get all the interviews shot in 2018 uh because i knew i was gonna go off and do dark waters and uh fonzo gonzalez my editor is was gonna go with me on dark waters and so we needed to find another a partner to really be starting to go through the interviews and really start to structure, sort of build the foundation of what this house was going to ultimately look like and sound like. And Adam Kernitz was a partner of Fonzie's, uh, Fonzo, um, on Gimme Danger, mm -hmm. the Iggy Pop, the Stooges doc sure. for Jarmish. And they had a fantastic relationship and partnership. So I met Adam and I was just, uh, I knew he was the right guy. He's like, I said, Adam, this is going to take calling through, you know, hours. And I mean, for the experimental films, mm -hmm. hours and hours. I want to put together a massive database of films. And my partner, Brian O'Keefe, who's a researcher and scholar, was the person who really started that process and put together this extraordinary list that then the folks at Motto started to materialize into actual links to the films. We built an amazing database that was massive, tried to organize it loosely around content. But I was like, Adam, I'm going to, I'm going to do as much of this as I can, but I got to go do a feature and come back. So are you prepared to sit there and like go through this stuff, you know? And a lot of it is long. And, and he said, there's something I love more. You know, I just want to sit there and, and watch six disappear. hour films. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's and cool. watch them again and, and then start to make selects, cut the whole thing in half once, go through that again, cut that in half once. Um, and so he started that remarkable process and that took, and, and, and with Brian, like it was, it was, it was Adam and Brian in consultation when, when I was occupied, the 
Dark Water's entire production was fairly fast. And so when it completed and we released the film in the fall of 2019, I was, I was ready for, for this. So you mentioned that John Kell is one of the first people you spoke to. A friend of mine who saw the movie a few months ago said, I was really surprised. Did you know that this, it feels, I don't know about a reclamation, but it really firmly positions John's role as like a creative centrifugal force along with Lou in the movie. Obviously John is still alive and Lou is not. So John can speak to the story of the band, but was that something that you felt like needed to be done or that you wanted to kind of put into the story that maybe people haven't forgotten about because Lou has gone on to become this kind of avenging angel of this culture? I didn't know initially. I didn't know. Like, to be honest, it wasn't a, an agenda. It wasn't like a, a preordained uh, idea for what, what this, as if this is what this doc is going to, how it's going to differ from others, things we may have seen or, or come, come across. Um, and, but I didn't know how, look, he gave so much of himself. It was so vital. It described the sort of experimental process and, 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 uh, roots of what the music would be from the perspective that he could speak to. But it also described this relationship. And, but you're only hearing it from one side. And Lou, Lou talks about the Velvet Underground, but in, in, in limited bits in recorded uh, interviews and audio that we collected, that we found and what, really what, called. Do you, do you know why that is? Why there's such a, why he was reluctant to speak at length about well, that experience? You, because usually he was talking about his newest release and it's understandable of course that's the thing you're invested in excited about you're promoting you want the energy to be about that and especially when people are also holding up the velvet underground as your as your greatest achievement right so i think there was and he's ornery and com complicated and tough and oppositional and defensive he's all those things you know and as everybody would continually sort of assert that that came from all kinds of insecurity that it's hard for us when we think of Lou Reed and his abilities and his voice and his songs, where that insecurity is coming from even, even later in his life. Um, but it's also, of course, the very thing that makes the Velvet Underground as a discourse so different and so unique from what other 60s artists, the, the messaging, the kind of self-affirmation, the positive messages. The, it's about people who are in pain and who are struggling with the world, struggling in their own skin, right? This is exactly the thing <laughs> that made this group speak to things that weren't easy to understand for years later and then became almost the only example, I mean, or the leading example of it, opened up an entire way of talking about male vulnerability, pain, self-destruction, self-destructiveness in ways that are just really hard to, that now we go, yeah, of course, of course, you know, we needed that. That was not being, with all the innovation, all the amazing stuff going on in the 1960s, 
this particular perspective was not necessarily being represented. So Lou Reed comprises so much of that. But, but you know, that is also in the relationship between John and Lou. There are aspects of that in, in John, you know, the, the, the way John talks about the creative partnership with Lou describes, you know, something akin to a kind of romance with all the volatility and all of the isolation and all of the later conflicts and defenses that arise around intimacy like that. But yeah, so we ended up with a much more thorough perspective from, from John Kell's side. And I thought we'd get shit for it and we would get shit for anything with the Velvet Underground. I mean, you know, it's just, there's too many people who bring their expectations, their own personal experience. It's just, I kind of had to make it what I was my experience and the conditions under which we were able to make it, you know? And, um, but it's not as if Lou's presence in John's life and in all their lives and Mo and everybody who we interviewed wasn't massive. And, and in a way, the structuring absence of him in the movie creates a certain kind of power too, I think, or I hope that makes things like the, the final interview that we finally get of him and Andy Warhol at the end of the movie, the Colicello interview. So like lands in a way that it may not have otherwise. Yeah. I mean, he, it's, he's very spectral throughout the whole movie and obviously everyone brings a certain level of feeling to the table about Lou. What was, what was your feeling about him going into this and did it change at all after you spent all this time working on it? Um, I think, you know, I, I got to hear tapes of the Danny Fields recorded of Lou at home, uh, talking on the phone with, with, with Danny. And, and when you hear Lou Reed talking to friends, trusted people, as opposed to journalists, it's a whole different thing. And, and I literally heard tapes of him hearing the Ramones for the first time and him going out of his mind and a kind of rapid fire. I mean, he might've been on speed. He might've been just Lou's amazing mind, you know, hitting every piston, you know, just like, but he was just on a, he was on a high after hearing this band. And then you literally hear, he said, what do they look like? You got a picture of them. And then Danny this must have been recorded in the house because they're together. Danny shows him a picture of them and then he like goes off again <laughs> on another fucking stratosphere. And in the right in the middle of it, he's like, John would go crazy for this. And you're you know, it's so moving because it's like it's the it's the person he goes to, you know, in 76, I guess. Um you know, that, that there was an ever presence of that. There was a primary presence of that, of that relationship, of what that meant creatively. And, you know, but it also described his pure love of rock and roll and what the kind of elemental reminder of it all was. And maybe John came to music making with a lot of intellectual curiosity 
an experimental um, interest and and wanted to break molds and 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 Lou there was something very primal about what he loved about rock and roll and it really communicated and so that's what you hear when you hear him talk about the Ramones as an example it's like a reminder of what drew drove him from the very beginning and so it's not a, it wasn't a revelation it it's just that it made it sound like oh man I wish I could have been Danny I wish I could have been that guy who he trusted and who he could just show his whole self to without the defenses and the sort of, you know, uh, issues around journalism and interview giving and all this stuff. And uh, because it just made you just fall in love with him. You know, there's just something so vital about his mind and his, and his passion for what he, what he did. Um, and then, you know, of course it's in the film, but I learned about, and this is not necessarily just about Lou. It's really about the whole band, but just how generous they were to Jonathan Richmond, the teenager. You know, that was something like you think, the Velvet Underground is so sweet and patient with his, <laughs> this nerdy, needy, you know, uh, guy who's just hanging out all the yeah, time. A strange fellow from Boston. Yeah. It's so sweet. Yeah. And, and they, and they let it just keep happening. He would drive them around in his, in his mom's, uh, station wagon to the after parties, you know, <laughs> it was just so, it, it just all these sides of, of them and their mystique and their self seriousness that kept getting sort of chipped away. It was really kind of lovely to see. John still speaks so admiringly of Lou's like innate primal gifts, but he also seems to still harbor some pain from how everything ended. How did you find Mo and Sterling and everyone else, like what were their feelings about things at this stage? You know, Mo occupied the sort of equalizer role, I think, throughout much of the band's life, where everybody could go to Mo, particularly Lou. Lou loved Mo so unconditionally. And so she occupied a, a very important place beyond her extraordinary talents and unique sound and and absolute distinction as a physical presence in popular music. Um, and, but even she was not uh, immune from getting some tough treatment from Lou, especially during the, the when they toured in the, in the, the latter stages. Yeah, yeah. latter stages. And it was often around money and like petty stuff. And you just sort of think, why? Like, it just seems like, why make stuff like that so important? It doesn't really matter when these people are really there for all the right reasons um, and always have been. Um, but for the most part, she, she maintains a kind of level headed um, lack of pretense about the way she can talk about it. And, and again, uh, when you hear her talk, you feel the immediacy of the pleasure of music making and not all the layers of, history and uh legend legend making that surrounds the band i mean she really also she lives in such a different place and so when she is reminded of the meaning of the velvet underground it's almost always a a, a fresh surprise for mm -hmm. her she's also had an amazing solo career mm -hmm. and her solo record is just 
her her solo records are great, but that compilation is every song on it is just uh, so good, you know, and and so and she's been such a an idol to to so many musicians and and artists and. But she seems it's just in such an interesting contrast. I say this as someone from Long Island, but she strikes me as a real you know she's a Long Island yeah. Irish yeah kind of a little hard nosed, a little plain spoken, a little yeah. straightforward. Yeah, and she exists inside of this kind of seemingly very rarefied community yeah. of artistic types. Yeah. Um. So it's just it's fascinating to see her. Like, did, did, does this experience still loom incredibly large in her life, or is is that just this happened for these ten years and I've had forty five years since and I'm going about my life? Like, how did you find the other band members kind of tangling with the legacy of their work? I think she recognizes what this means. I think uh, it's selective about when people want to spend time talking about it Mm -hmm. and have a camera crew enter their world and talk about it. Doug Ewell, we tried many times to get on film and he just didn't want to do it. It's so fascinating. It is. And and yet a part of me is like, you know what? I get it. There's just times where you just aren't in the mood and you've done it before and Look, this is these were crazy times that we were all living through and are continuing to live through. But this was the Trump years, the crazy years, and uh, I can see how people just like, you know what? I gotta, <laughs> I gotta spend some time doing other things right now. Yeah, and well, I, even in Doug's case, people have really come to love that record and course, that period. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I know. feel like it's gone through a whole. Life cycle Re- change in the last twenty years in and, many ways. Yeah, yeah. so it's well, it's it's beautiful. It's you know, it's four records that are so different. Uh, they really are, yeah. and uh, not just the the two and two, but they really are different individually. And they, um, and of course, the first two reflect a different set of terms and 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 that. And, and, and but but the first record with Miko in it is just like something uh, that could never be repeated. Right? Uh, could only survive its time. You know, you sort of felt that that was ticking through the very short-lived duration of the band in general. Um, but no, I agree, and I and, and those records are exquisite. I mean, yes, I agree with Mo. I I would love to have heard her play drums on Loaded, and I think it would have given that record a lot more um, power. Taking some know? of the sheen off. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and, and maybe united the songs that feel a little more piecemeal to me mm-hmm. than, other, than any of the other records, I'd say. Um, but, um, but I think they get it, and I think, uh, uh, and I think they and look this is also a lost I, I was very aware making this film when we were making it particularly in as covid hit and we were fully further isolated that you're sort of talking about a distant planet like a, like a like a like an endangered planet that's going to expire somehow and that we were sort of there to mark its to remark uh, its its importance it's it's value and kind of and in doing so that meant kind of re-examining what values how values had changed since the 60s to now and and what 
what was possible in, in this moment. And, and it was possible in a general sense in the 1960s and it was even more possible in the very specific time and place of New York City in the 60s, which was sort of a counter counterculture to that period. And, and the factory and its, and, its, and its unique kind of sensibility and queerness and, you know, uh, oppositional stance to all these other kind of categories of dominance that even if they were dressed up as hippie culture, I love that sequence when they go west, and yeah. I can't recall the actress's name from meeting Raul, who's like, we fucking Mary, hated Mary Warren. Yeah, Mary. Warren. I mean, That's what an incredible moment! She is. We we really have. We all. We we really do have so much more. You know, it's what's you know, beginning with so many limitations and trying to overcome them. You know, I look back now and go, there's so much more films that we could have gotten into this. There's so much more parts of the interviews that we have. They were generous and, and and insightful and funny and moving and uh, wicked and um, generous, you know. Uh, so we really we really got so much amazing stuff. But I I really felt in the end the balancing act for me was let the music and the images lead the experience. So so people will not get that that fully narrativized. Um, you know, tutorial of what the Velvet Underground were and the sort of behind the scenes tidbits and the kind of little anecdotal stories. It's really going to be more at a visceral level mm -hmm. to kind of put you back in this time and place and imagine how this music, and also imagine what made this music radical, you know, because now maybe it's been so fully consumed that we forget that. And absorbed and recontextualized yes. and become like a part of the mainstream culture exactly. in ways that maybe it doesn't even seem like it is. Exactly. Um, let's talk a little bit about sort of like the putting a movie out into the world right now. Um, this is a movie with, with Apple TV plus and most of your films have been released theatrically. Most people will see this on their home screens. How do you feel about that? What's your sense of where the whole world is going. I feel like I've asked this question every time I've seen you, but it's been two yeah, years and two years and two years. Sure. So yeah. how, how are you feeling about all the way it's coming out into the world? Well, look, they, we knew from the beginning, this was our sort of con conditions for whatever distributor we went with for the movie that we wanted a theatrical release. Um, of course, everything's going to stream, you know, and that was, and Apple was down with that. I mean, things, but things have kept shifting <laughs> in terms of what's possible theatrically, of course, in ways none of us could have anticipated. Um, and they have committed to a, a, a great theatrical roster of releases throughout the country. And I'm just, right now, I'm like crossing my fingers that these theaters keep their doors open. And also in, internationally, we have, we have theatrical um planned everywhere uh or several countries uh look when i i i i made the movie in on the avid you know um and i even me and fonzie and adam all had our avids we were all cutting together it was so much fun you know i haven't been cutting for a long time um we did our mix as best we could remotely from portland mm -hmm. 
in an Atmos little room and Fonz came and hung out with me while we did that part of it. I saw it, you know, I worked with Leslie Schatz, my, my sound designer, uh, and remotely, you know, and we tried to produce all the deliverables in, in that fashion. Went to some theaters in Portland to hear the five, one mix, but it wasn't until I was at Cannes. Mm. And heard the film at the Lumiere Theater. Of course, I knew it would look sensational, and it did. But the sound was just, it just blew me away. And uh, so after that, you know, and Matt and Molly from Apple were there, and we were all like, holy shit, this was really impactful. And no matter how good your home system is, you're not going to hear it like this. You might have the biggest screen. But I, and you may even have an Atmos room if you're lucky, very, very lucky and rich. But, um, I don't have one of those, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you're not going to hear it like that. And so, so yeah, of course, I just want everybody to hear it in yeah. a theater. And I, I'm just hanging on the fact that they're, they're really trying to expand. Magnolia is really doing a great job in expanding the theatrical and, uh, and it continues to expand every day. And, but it's just uncertain times. So we're, we're doing our best. Yeah, the the incent one of the incentives is I saw it on a big screen. As soon as it was over, I got in my car and just drove around for an hour listening to the Velvets. So that's hopefully the intention is to just totally. fall in love again, listen yeah. to the records again. That's awesome. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, which is not Velvet Underground related, but your film Safe had a bit of a revival during this very trying eighteen months we're having here, and. You know, certainly people were watching Contagion and Outbreak and films like that, but I felt like Safe was also resonating with people in a big way. I'm wondering if you were hearing about that, what your sense of that is, and kind of how you feel about it kind of resurfacing in the culture. Yeah, I was. I was seeing articles being written about the film and people talking about it <clears throat> online. And um, it's funny, I didn't watch it myself again. I didn't rewatch it during this time. I I should. It's You go into phases where you're you want to watch your old movies and then phases where you're kind of wanting to stay away, keep some distance. Um, but it, you know, look, um, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I recognize that there are themes in safe that, that were, um, that, that were speaking to the times in which during when it was made for sure. But, and, and no one wants to think those are, are, going to be the new norm norms that we live under you know that these terms and questions about contagion and identity and isolation are going to be played out in this particular way um jg ballard once said once was asked what is <laughs> what is your what is you know what do you what do you think about the future or what is what, what is your personal view being a science fiction writer about the future and he said the future is the californization of the world and I always think of that <laughs> with safe and, yeah. uh, as a California resident, I right? understand. Yeah. I understand too. That's where I came from. Um, and, uh, and in, and in some ways that are like, you know, in environmental practices, you know, and, and, and breakthroughs that have happened in cafe standards and, and all the things that, it, that, that have come out of the sort of incubation of, of uh, the incubator of California state. There's some good things. Uh, but yeah, the, the sort of philosophical um, questions about, about self and, 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 you know, um, 
I spent, we were in LA during COVID and during the cutting of Velvet Underground. And uh, there's a crisis in that, in that city. And the homeless situation is, is out of control. And the ways the comfortable live separately and kind of are encouraged to uh, not really address the conditions that are causing it and are um, worsening it. And that's a problem and it's complicated. And I don't believe Newsom should be replaced for it, but I, um, but it is, and it's happening in all major cities in the, in the country right now. It's a really serious issue. So, you know, but I, you know, I'm, of course, when your work feels like it's relevant and continues to speak to the world and new audiences, it always feels um, gratifying. Have you got something else lined up that you're doing? Yeah, I'm doing uh, uh, another project that I had been developing and then it got swapped with other things. This is, you know, as you know, this happens uh, about Peggy Lee. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and Michelle Lee, Michelle Williams, Michelle Lee, I said, I almost said, that's good. <laughs> uh, Michelle Williams is going to play Peggy and that's what we're, uh, trying to get, get lined up. That's exciting. Feature film. Year. Yeah. Feature film. Very cool. Yeah. Todd, we end every episode of the show by asking filmmakers, what's the last great thing they've seen. You've just arrived in Telluride. I assume you haven't seen anything here I yet. I haven't seen anything here. I j- you know what? I just started the last great thing I, I saw. I, I've just started to watch is the underground railroad. Yes. And I, I have more to go. Uh, but it's, it's, it's just a magnificent piece of work and it's, uh, it's, it's so beautifully made. I read the book and I was, and I know, you know, I, Mark Friedberg is my production designer and he's completely consumed with it. But the actors and as always, very dense. It's just an amazing piece of work. It's a great wreck. Todd, always good to see you. Congrats on the Velvet Underground. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you to Todd Haynes, Amanda, and our producer, Bobby Wagner, for his work on this episode. Later this week, we're breaking down one of our favorite living directors. CR is going to join us to talk about Wes Anderson, whose 11th feature film, The French Dispatch, arrives this week. 